Hi everyone, it is absolutely fabulous to be here with you, all the little faces that we can see, those of you that we cannot see, who are tucked away, who knows where, and uh, just sharing a great Jesus moment with us. I was uh, up early this morning in the hotel, and uh, I read this passage of Scripture, and I thought it was so profoundly applicable to Bridgetown as a community, and it's from the, the, the book of Acts, and Paul arrives in this little town called Berea, and um, it says, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see what John Mark's, oh, sorry, what Paul said was true. And I, I just want to thank you right, at, right off the bat. You know, we do have the privilege. I got some texts from our guys in India this morning just showing huge piles of bodies being burnt because the morgues can't cope with it. And uh, so the people are having to do that themselves, just huge flames, uh, large areas. And I say all of that, connecting the two parts to the story, is thank you for who you are and thank you for embracing the truth that has come from this pulpit because it has had ramifications not just into Bridgetown, not just into Portland or Oregon, but into the nations of the world. I often get calls, I'm, I'm on Zooms uh, every day somewhere in the world, and invariably the question is, how's John Mark, how's Bridgetown? Thank you, because you've made that possible. It's one thing to have a ministry that's global, it's another thing that has a community that practices that ministry, and makes it global. And that's what you've done, Bridgetown. You have created a community that is earnest and zealous and uh, passionate about the text and making sure that what it says is true and it is practiced in its truth. So it's a delight to be here. I'm also very honored, of course, to be contributing to the eternal series called Matthew. It never ends. It keeps going. You can understand why Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones took, I think, 27 years in the book of Romans every Wednesday or Thursday night. There's some books that refuse to die. They just keep going. And I'm super privileged to take a passage and open it up a little bit this morning in a way that I trust is helpful. So grab your Bibles, if you don't mind, and let's go to Matthew 22. And... Um, I'm going to take us to verse 15 for about seven or eight verses. And then the Pharisees, the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. So yeah, we have two groups of people, Jews, some of whom supported Herod and the whole Roman occupation of their land. It was an occupational force, a remarkable uh, Roman story for those of you history nerds like me. It's, it's the, the empire that uh, should not have lasted as long as it did. And then the Pharisees, who were the local guardians of truth, they believed they were. And so, yeah, we have two conflicting groups, but with a common enemy. And the common enemy was Jesus. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? The imperial tax was for non-Roman citizens. So anyone who was 
subjugated to this Roman imperialism, had to pay a tax that the Roman citizens themselves would not have had to have paid. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent or their malice, some translations say, said, you hypocrites, what are you trying? Why are you trying to trap me? Show show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he said to them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's. They replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar or render unto Caesar, the great old New King James says, what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed or astounded, and they left him and went away. What a magnificent passage of Scripture. Do you mind if I pray quick? Jesus, we, we love you. We, we're, we're awed by you. Even though this is 2,000 years later in a non-Roman world, a world we find difficult to understand with its imagery and its pomp and its circumstance and its depravity and its craziness, yet somehow tucked away in here is the majesty and marvel of who you are and how we can be a people who reflect your beauty and your wonder and your creativity and your redemption and your healing and your restoration. Now, would you speak to us each and would you speak to us as a community and help continue to transform us that we may look like you just a little bit more because of today. And Lord, can I ask, I don't know who you're going to heal today, but would you heal them right now? I don't know which marriage you're going to restore as the word of God is spoken because there's restorative power in the proclaimed word, but would you do that right now? Would hands reach across the couch at home and touch again like smitten lovers? But now we're older and we're gray and we've got a little belly, and, but the romance of marriage when the word of God is preached can be restored in wonder. And I just ask, Lord, do what only you can do as we offer you the best that we have in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mulled over this passage, I kind of landed on three ideas. So those of you who are kind of a little Presbyterian-ish, I think you're going to like this message. It kind of does the three-point thing. And uh, I, I, I hope it opens up the text because part of today is not just to bring understanding to this passage. It's to get you to fall in love with the Bible. The ongoing, ever present tense of God with us. The incarnation, the word who Jesus is, alive and breathing into us, even in the most dastardly 18 months that we've had, from January-ish, March last year to date, and how the word of God can be that ongoing creative force that just shapes us and restores to us joy and peace and grace, and how he empowers us to live transcendent lives, lives that we cannot humanly do. To the grumpy, he makes you smile. To the pessimistic, he restores your sense of hope. To the overly optimistic, he keeps you overly optimistic. (laughs) Because that's who he is. And as I wrestled with this text, I kind of found myself in three big ideas. The first is this. That what this passage does is it brings us into the conversation of contention and Jesus' leaders. Contention and Jesus' leaders. One commentator I read said it, The gospel setting shows Jesus' opponents trying to maneuver him into a corner by asking him the controversial question of whether the Jews were allowed by their law to pay taxes to the Roman power that occupied their country. Their aim was to trap him. If Jesus replied they should pay the Roman tax, he would be accused of betraying his people. 
and collaborating with their enemy. Now, we don't really understand that, do we? None of us have really lived with an occupying force where even the slightest emotive moment by a centurion could lead to a flogging or death or imprisonment. We don't understand that at all. It's very foreign to our context. We live in a land of rights. I remember when we came here 26 years ago from South Africa, just being quite astounded at the American commitment to individual rights. I loved it, comma, until I realized it became an idol where my right becomes way more important than what benefits the community. Now, in this same culture, they're trying to trap Jesus to get him to say something that aligns himself with either the Herodians, who in turn agreed with the tax, or the Pharisees, who were themselves in opposition to the Roman government. Let me ca carry on reading. On the other hand, if he replied that they should not pay the tax, he should be denounced to the Romans as a troublesome rebel. Now, what a challenge. Are you a troublesome rebel, Jesus? Or are you a, 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 an unloyal person? You, you are non-patriotic. Now, most church leadership finds itself in that dastardly position of heads I lose, tails I lose. That's where they painted Jesus. We live in that space, and that would be true of parents. It could be true of you as a, as a Christian businessman or woman. It could be you leading a nonprofit or a school. You continuously find yourself painted in the corner by those who are seeking to expose you. And so here in this moment, we have this great Jesus lesson, which I think will be helpful. More recently, we who are in church leadership have found ourselves torn between, on the one hand, church and state. Come on, church, we should meet. Masks off. Let's believe God. Let's get together again. And why must we bow to the state? Why must, and I'm speaking as a Californian who, driven largely by Christians, Christians are trying to get Governor, Governor Newsom recalled. Who does he think he is? We know that we can meet. We, see, all of this, and then those who are seeking to honor government and validate their decision and understand it. What do we do? Biden versus Trump. What do we do? How do we administrate the conservatism versus progressives? How do we handle the historical versus the futurist values? What do we do when local and federal government are at war with each other, pro and anti-vaxxers? What do we do, Antifa or the Proud Boys? Many years ago, I, I, Meryl and I planted uh, when I was 24 and she was 21. What you can obviously assume is we were not only green, we were completely ignorant, and what we lacked in knowledge, we had in passion. You know what I mean? What you don't know, you don't know. And we just set out in this incredible adventure called church planting. I loved every minute of that first community that we planted. But I soon realized that I was facing things. It was apartheid South Africa. I was a privileged white person having all the benefits of the best schools, best universities, best suburbs, uh, best income. My family started off poor but became uh, upper middle class. And, and now I'm leading a church and I'm suddenly faced with the stark reality of the injustice of a nation that suppressed, openly and overtly oppressed, politically and economically, socially and in every way educationally, those who were non-whites as they were so broadly categorized. And I realized I couldn't be silent. 
But my job was not now to stand on a soapbox and tout a communist or socialist agenda, nor could I defend a, a capitalistic, consumeristic, materialistic agenda. And I went to God. I said, God, what do I do? What do I do? And I heard my mouth pray a prayer for me. Wisdom, humility, and authority. I don't know what to do. And I realized, dear friends, in that time that, that, that Jesus was not, the Jesus way was not the central way. It was the other way. We are not to be called to a life of mediocrity, buffeting the two extremes. We are called to another narrative. We are writing a different story. I remember sitting with the security police in my office. They were um, the FBI equivalent. And they said, uh, Pastor, we've realized that you've been preaching some things that are contrary to the political system. I said, well, I'm so sorry you feel that way. But you see, I have no alternative. When I look at the Bible, this is what I have to preach. A few days later, they called me and said, we've heard you are having a prayer meeting on Thursday. I said, yes, we are. They said, is it a political prayer meeting? So I said, well, before I answer it, here's the question I have for you. If it's political, will you be there? And they said, oh, we will definitely be there. I said, it is so political. It is so political. I think you'd better be there. One of them got saved and ended up being a deacon in our church. You, you see, we, we, we're presenting an alternative, not a middle of the road, because Jesus is the rock of offense. We say and do things as we honor the text that will offend. Someone will be offended this morning by something I say, guaranteed. But I hope it's because of Jesus, not because of me. And there is a contention that we Christians live in, and especially we Christian leaders live in, that we have to hold together by grace. It is a sovereign empowerment because by ourselves we want to be liked. By ourselves we want to be applauded, as we'll see in just a moment. But this Jesus adventure is the partnership we have to creating the alternative story. And so I prayed, that was my mantra for years. Meryl prays that for me, others pray that, oh God, that he may have wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to make a decision based on its future outcome. In other words, we're not making decisions that placate the moment. We're making decisions based on what the outcome will be, that the kingdom of God will be advanced, the gospel will be proclaimed, Jesus' communities will be established because of the decisions we make now. When my daughter turned 13, I'm running ahead of myself, but it's okay. My daughter turned 13, and we just arrived here, and I went to Best Buy's because it was back in the day, and I, I wanted to get her a big boombox, see? Now, coming from South Africa, you go into a store, and you had a choice of like five. I walked into Best Buy, and there were five rows, I mean, like this, row after row after row. So I'm standing there on the phone to Meryl. I said, babe, which one should I get? Now, obviously, the one I want to get is the big one and the expensive one because when she opens the gift tomorrow morning, what I want to see is that look as she sees the thing, looks at her dad. You are the best dad ever. See? It's actually all about me, isn't it? And then she's going to go to her friends and say, you can't, uh, you can't believe what my dad did. I mean, you can't believe what my dad did. See? It's all about me. So... I do the thing I hate doing in those moments, I pray. I say, Lord, which one should I buy for Nas? And I wanted God to say, son, bless her. Just, just get her 
But I, I didn't. I, I, I felt to buy the kind of middle, it was about a hundred and something dollars. So the next morning we give her the gift and I'm leaning into the moment. I'm watching her eyes because I know I'm going to see disappointment. I know I'm going to see disappointment. I don't see it. Fast forward, probably 10 years. We are in their house in Australia. She and her husband planted a church in Perth, a place called Subiaco. And I walk into the pantry to get a snack, but there's hardly any food in there. And in that moment, the Spirit of God said to me, now do you see why? And it was like I knew all those years back, it was not what I could afford to buy her, it was what she could afford to get from me. That's wisdom. It's hearing the voice of the Spirit of God to make a decision that will somehow have a ramification years later. I've had the conversation with her. She's had to, as a church planter's wife, get to the till, look at her grocery money, and say, okay, well, I'll take that, and I won't take that. Yes, she says, I can have that. No, kids, we can't have that. And in a context of contention, where we live, where darkness and light collide every day, we live in that place. In the space where the demonic world comes and offends the beautiful transcendence of our holy God, that's where we live. That's our address. We can't avoid it. We can't get away from it. We can't ignore it. But what we can do, dear friends, is we can pray for our leaders. Humility because that's the very trigger of grace. God gives grace to the humble. And then authority, which again is a transcendence impartation, where we exercise an authority. I have an authority as the dad over my three kids, not because I'm the man, but because God the Father gave me a mantle called Chris the Father to care for and nurture those three kids, the youngest of whom is at college now. Are you with me? What's my exhortation here? Jesus had to face this story. And I want to suggest, dear friends, and I'm quoting from Hebrews 13, that you pray now more than ever for your leaders. Hebrews 13 says, Remember your leaders, remember, who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life. You can. Look at how they do life. Imitate their faith. Not their dress code, or their style, but their faith. Their sense of belief in the great and glorious Father, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 17, have confidence in your leaders. Now comes a seriously brutal one for a millennial world. And submit to their authority. Can we just take a scissors and cut that out the Bible? Submit an authority and they're all in one sentence, one phrase. Submit their authority. That is offensive. Yes, ma'am, it is. It's still true, though. It's still true, though, because it goes on to say, as those who must give an account. I have been in prayer sometimes, and I have felt God say to me, son, how is, I'm going to randomly choose it, how's Sarah doing? What, what do you mean, how's Sarah doing? Why don't you ask her? You know what I mean? He said, no, son, because you will give an account. I'm asking you, son, how's Sarah doing? Because you need to know how she's doing. As a shepherd, as a pastor, as a father, as a lover of his sheep. So my exhortation to you is that we are a community who do indeed remember our leaders. We do indeed consider 
their outcome or their way of life. We imitate their faith. We have confidence in them. We submit to their authority as those who give an account. And verse 18, pray for us. Isn't it interesting of everything that is... Wouldn't you have asked Jesus, oh, come on, the big J, show me how to walk on water. I mean, come on, just, just give me a bit of love here. I mean, I've seen you do it a couple of times. Can you just show me how to do that? I, I think I might have. Or you know that Lazarus thing you did? You know, you really are a disaster at funerals, Jesus, because every funeral you go to, the body doesn't stay dead. I mean, we don't want to take you to funerals anymore. Well, when you ask him, how, well, how do you do that raising of the dead thing? They didn't. They said, teach us how you pray, because the most compelling, captivating part of his life was his prayer. And they begged him, please show us how to pray. And I'm saying all of that because we are at a, such a crucial moment both locally in Portland, but also nationally and globally. If there ever was a time the church must be on their knees in the posture of ultimate humility, crying out to God for their leaders, it is now. Because the tension and the contention is greater than it's ever been. LA Times wrote an article, one of the authors, uh, journalists. It said, for the first time in American history, 47% of Americans now say they go to any semblance of worship at any time in a year. Mosques, synagogues, or churches, 47%. It's the first time in American history that there is no 50 plus percent perceived or identifying Christians. Isn't that curious? And if that is true, just identifying how light is the prayer that we could or should be offering up to the throne of grace. Okay, number one was the contention of Jesus' leaders. Number two, the reflection of this Jesus community, and I will be very brief here. Isn't this a beautiful passage in verse 18 and 19? Uh, sorry, 16 and 18. Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity, that you teach the way of God in accordance with the word. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. My dear friends, this is a time to reflect Jesus in his beauty. If we take these four things in a way that um, Eugene Peterson says, Teacher, we know you, one, have integrity. I was sitting with a friend in Costa Mesa, California, where we've uh, established a new community. And I said, Josh, we've been in Costa Mesa for three and a half years. When people talk about Genesis, what do they say? I've never asked anyone that before. I thought that was a curious question. And our friendship allows for that. And he said this. He said, it reminds me of a quote, he said, that said, you guys really believe this stuff. You guys really believe this stuff. And he went on to say, when I think of Genesis, there is no gap between the proclaimed word and the lived word. You guys really believe this stuff. And as I was prepping for this this morning, I thought, man, this is true of Bridgetown. You guys really believe this stuff. This is a community known for its integrity. And how many of you know integrity has a massive price tag? It's not a cheap commodity. It isn't something you slap at the end of the cigarette box or you, you know, it's the end of a tip 10%, 15%, 20%, and oh, by the way, have a bit of integrity. It's a lifetime's journey where we hold dear to the text, and whatever the text calls me to, I will do. I was reading Peter this morning, and he was updating them about him meeting Cornelius. For those of you who know the story, Cornelius being a centurion, a non-Jew. And here's Peter who goes to eat with a non-Jew. Big no-no. And he said, look, let me tell you what happened, man. I had this vision. He describes the vision. And the, the, the next verse says, and without hesitation, Peter 
went to Cornelius. Again, we have no idea what that means. We have no idea what it meant for a Jew to eat with a non-Jew in their house, eat their food. No idea. But such is the beauty of this. And can we is the appeal, especially in this time of leadership transition, with John Mark and Tammy handing over to Tyler, where there is this, this moment of, wow, what will the community look like? What's going to happen? How, how will all this flood its way going forward? What if this reflection remains true? You know, in athletics, the, uh, the most vulnerable moment of a relay race is when two athletes hold the baton at the same time. That's the most vulnerable time. One either holds on too long, and they outrun their markers and get disqualified. Or the other one snatches it to grab it too quickly and it ends up tumbling way down and, and they get disqualified. But the sheer wisdom and genius of two holding it just long enough to secure it and to let it go. I know, they said of Jesus, you are a man of integrity. Bridgetown. Hold steadfast and firm the integrity that you have, that there's no squishiness between the word preached and the word lived. Let me speak with a father's heart for just a moment. The pandemic was brutal. We've got a little church full of millennials. I don't know why, but the average age is 20-something. Lots of sinning during the pandemic. Girlfriend saying to the boyfriends, I'm alone. Please just come. And then it's like, oh, it's so late. Why don't you stay over? Yeah, okay. Kiss, kiss, cuddle, cuddle, trouble. See? Oh, we're just at home all the time. A couple of scotches, you know. The Bible is not a shame culture. The Bible is a transparency culture. I said to my kids, I never expect you to be perfect, but I do expect you to be honest. And I think there's something of the Father's heart in there. God isn't expecting perfection from our behavior. Oh, dear, I've blown it. Gerald, I'm sorry, I can't come back to church. There's so much shame. We've had people who haven't come back into our community. I'm not talking about attend a gathering, check. I'm talking about people engaged in community because of the shame of what happened during the last year. Dear, dear friend, does this gospel not count for anything? Does grace not abound for the sinner? Is there no sense of God's redemption for the brokenhearted who did things they wished they hadn't done? Integrity doesn't mean I'm living a life of perfection. Integrity means I collide my own sinful rebelliousness with the precious, wondrous mercy, kindness, and grace of my God who forgives me of all of my sins and He washes them away. That's where it meets, where this truly is a place where we can come, every one of us, in our brokenness. I was thinking this week of when I got saved as a 19-year-old man, an 18-year-old, and I was just thinking, God, what did I have to offer you? I'd failed my freshman year at college. I was 17. I drank too much. I nearly lost my eye in a, a bar fight, in a, in a fight on campus. I mean, it was just, I, I lay on my bed. I said, Jesus could you take someone like me? See, see, I have to know I've got nothing to offer you right now. I'm not righteous. I'm not even slightly righteous. I have nothing, nothing to offer you right now. But could you take someone like me? 
and the sense of God. I didn't know all this language. I wasn't a church kid like this. And, and, and in that moment, the presence of the Father's love came over me, and I knew He loved me, not because I had anything to offer Him, but just because of who He is. And dear friends, that's where shame and guilt leave the door and in floods the kindness, mercy, goodness, redemption, restoration of this glorious Savior who went to the cross for me. Jesus, we know that you're a man of integrity. Church, we know that you're a community of integrity. We know that. It's where truth and practice collide in grace. You teach the way of God accurately. You're indifferent to popular opinion. You know, Paul, the apostle, the teacher, the author, the super clever guy, he said this in Galatians 1. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, approval or pleasing Oh, no, I have to die to that. I have to die to that. You know why I'm not on Instagram? I've got an account. Okay, totally honestly, I get all jealous. I get all insecure. I see people I discipled, and I'm an old guy now, and they've got big churches, and they're doing all sorts of fancy things, and I'm not. And then the enemy says, well, Chris, if you just tweak things a little bit, if you just do things a little bit nicer, if you just get a little bit more approval, man, you must see what will happen to your Instagram account. Really? Really? Oh, I want to sit at the end of the day when the sun sets and I have a moment to capture my breath and I have a glass of wine in hand and I want to sit to that audience of one and I want to process the day and I want to see him look down at me and say, well done, my boy. I know that was hard. I know that was hard. I know there was a tough decision to make. I know disciplining that person was super brutal. I get that. I know preaching that particular part of the message, it cost you. I know. But I'll hold you. And I'll care for you. And we'll wipe away the aches and the pains and the criticism and the disapproval and the grumpiness. And we'll pick you up again. I love you, Gene Peterson says. You're indifferent to popular opinion and you don't pander to your students. Paul says, You're not I'm not trying to win the approval of human beings, nor am I trying to please people. Okay, one more. I said there were three points. I'm going to be a good Presbyterian. The one was the contentious, the contention Jesus' leaders face. Two was the reflection of Jesus' community. Is this what they will say of us? And then number three, the theonomy of a Jesus practice. That was especially for John Mark. I found that in my research, theonomy. I didn't know that was a word. It's a thing. It is a thing. And this is my moment, my moment to seek approval of and please him. No, I'm joking. <laughs> See, economy says 1 plus 1 equals 2. Theonomy says 1 plus 1 equals 3 or 6 or, or 10. Theos, God, economy, onomy is, is the practice of economy, economic practices. Theonomy says, again, that God has another way of doing things. 
God, God has a, another way of doing things. Don't be driven or held captive by the practices that are around you. The, the introduction, Jesus says, is he, he doesn't say, uh, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Or keep for yourself what's yours. He says, give unto Caesar's what is Caesar's and give unto God what is God's. See, again, forgive my personal stories today, but when I was 19, they said, tithe. I said, okay, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. They say, give 10% of all of your income, and when you're not earning anything because you're a university student, it kind of makes it easy because you are talking. In fact, oh, I was so blessed this morning. All the giving in our little community comes onto my phone, and one of the new guys in the church sent through $27 last night. My heart leapt like it was $2 million. Would I like $2 million? Yes. But did I love the $21? Oh, absolutely, because something shifted in his heart. New to the community, I do not know his story yet, but I saw that come through, and I said, Jesus, now I understand the widow's might. Back to the text. The theonomy, that God story, God economic story. So I, I'm, I'm recently saved. Now I hear about tithing and I say, I am in. Without hesitation, that's what Peter said. I took take 10% and I give my 10% and I am in the game. Then I move on years later and people say to me, oh, I don't believe in tithing. So I say, well, you obviously give more than that. Well, what do you mean? Well, well, if you don't want to give 10%, then surely you give more than that because that's really what kind of burns in your heart, and invariably the conversation ends. Because it's not an intellectual debate. It is a condition of the heart. For God so loved the world He gave. When the love of God, which is shed abroad in our hearts, grabs our soul, and accompanying that love is giving, then suddenly it translates into my heart this overwhelming privilege of becoming a generous person. Tithing is where we begin. It's kindergarten stuff. Taking that checkbook and writing that, which I've done for almost half a century, 44 years. Every month it goes out. There is no grumpiness. Now and again I say to Meryl, hmm, imagine what we could do every month if we didn't tithe our combined income. That would be very fun. But here comes the lesson. We can never outgive God. We can never. Please hear me. Please, I could spend an hour telling you story after story. A quick couple of stories, how I'm doing time-wise. Okay. A friend of mine feels God calls him, I'm going to tell a public story and a private one, to put up a 3,000-seater in South Africa. He does not know a pandemic's coming. 80,000 rand, don't know how to translate it, it's a lot of money. They raised 70 million. 70, let me say again, 80 million rand. Is that what I said, babe? 80 million rand. Okay. They raise 70 million. They pay the contractor. The money ends. Rory does not believe in debt. They are 10 million short. They raise 2 million. The church is done. It's got giving fatigue. There's no more money. Rory sits with the elders. He's a man of incredible, probably the most generous man I know. He had 2 million in the account, they need 10. He says to the elders, give 600,000 away to a church down the road that's building. The elders say, Rory, you're nuts. You're nuts. We need 10, we've got two, now you want to take a portion of that and give it away. And then he goes on vacation. It's like Jesus sleeping in the boat. You know what I'm saying? He goes to sleep and the elders are left with this, ha, 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 we need 10 million. Three days after Rory's away on vacation, a young girl drives up in a golf, masked up. 
She says, um, I don't want you to try and find out who I am. She says, I think my date's correct. She says, in 1965, my dad started collecting gold coins. And he said to her, my girl, one day, you will know who it will be, which church is deserving of this money. And she said, I've been watching you carefully, and I believe you answer my father's request. You are worthy of this money. And she drops a bag of gold coins, Kruger coins, and she leaves in a janky gulf. The elders take it and they count it. There is six million rand in gold coins from a poor girl. What did they give away? 600,000 rand. What did they get? Six million rand. Can someone do the math for me? You cannot outgive God. Are you with me? That's probably one of the most important lessons you will ever learn in theonomy. Because our minds are crafted by the economy of the day, the logistical. One plus one equals two. It will always be two unless there's a transcendent interruption in which God, the miracle working God, takes the seed we sow and we multiply it out. I had to, the church we led, our second church, went through two lawsuits, story not important, other than to say there was a period of time I wasn't paid. No one knew but the accountant and me. My daughter, in the meanwhile, was at Biola and went to Oxford to go and study for one of her years. We get to Oxford, super proud, very emotional, went to the C.S. Lewis pub, did all the things that you're supposed to do. They call all the American parents in. There's been a miscommunication. The reality is that um, it doesn't include food for your students. Dana looks at me, she says, Dad, is this okay? Now, what do I say to her? Babe, I'm not getting paid right now. Is that what I say? Well, well, if I believe in economy, one plus one equals two, that is what I say. Or I say, oh, well, why don't we just take out a loan? That's what I say, and I'm not against loans. I said, it's okay, babe, and I take the money I have in my pocket and I open an HBSC account and I start driving back to Heathrow Monday morning. My phone rings. Hey, Chris Ryan. Yeah, Ryan is one of the church planters I work with in London. I said, Ryan, I'm so sorry I didn't say hi. Give a big sob story. She said, that's not why I'm calling. He said, we as an eldership, because of everything you've sown into us, ask, can we have the privilege of giving 300 pounds a month to your daughter? He didn't know I wasn't being paid. Dana didn't know I wasn't being paid, but God knew. And you know what God knew? Is that every month, Meryl and I tithe on what we should be earning. Because it's not about the economy of man, it's the theonomy. It's the economy of God. What was Jesus teaching them here? He was teaching them that there is another way. Give unto God what is God's. I've got two minutes, one story, and a close. So we run out of money for my son who's at Point Loma. End of his junior year last year, I've got no more money in the college fund. Call him in. T, here it is, boy. We, the count's empty. It's okay. So what are we going to do? Do you want to leave college? Do you want to um, uh, take a loan for the final year? Or are we going to trust God? And I knew what he would do. He batted back to me. He says, well, what do you think, Dad? 
So I said, why don't we trust God? Why don't we just see what God will do, my boy? Because I want each of my kids to have a God story that they know is not organized by dad. See, on each occasion, I had no more money in my college account. I wasn't earning a salary. This is a theonomy. This is give unto God what is God's. I said, okay, my boy, let's trust God. Let's see what God can do within a week. Do you know the end of the story? Of course you do. Because within a week, there was a check for $7,500 in the mail. This is for your son's education. No one knew but Meryl, Tian, and I that we'd run out of college money. I called him in. I said, boy, here it is. Remember with Abraham? Dad, his boy said, where's the sacrificial lamb? See, Isaac had to pass on the story of faith. Isaac had to be the one who handed on the baton to his children and his children's children. And so Isaac needed a moment that was unequivocally God. Give unto God what is God's. And Abraham wisely said, Yahweh. The telegrammaton, Y-H-W-H. Here, Jaira. God is our provision, my boy. Don't you ever forget that, my boy. God is our provision. When your life has been saved by that revelation, you will never forget it. And it's a story I wanted for each of my kids, and each of my kids have one. I preached some of this last Sunday in our community. And I was told over $30,000 exchanged hands and three cars were given away. See how easy it is? When we're given to God, what is God's? We've got to honestly ask, Mary, we've got a tiny community, two of us own homes in the church. That's all. But this is always true. The contention of the Jesus leaders, pray with all of your heart for them. The reflection of the Jesus community that these things are true. And then the theonomy of the Jesus practice that we discover you can never outgive God. What a joyous conclusion to a moment that threatened with calamity.